0: When you sign up to be a member of Congress, you're signing up to serve, just like I did, just like others did when we joined the Marine Corps, right? We didn't expect to join the Marine Corps, do a bunch of insider trading, coming out a gazillionaire. We expected to risk our lives, serve our country and our communities, and come out the other side honorable and respected.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Lucas Kuntz, Democratic candidate in the U.S. Senate primary in Missouri. Lucas is navigating an interesting path, running as a progressive populist in a state that's been quite difficult lately for Democrats. If he gets through his primary, his matchup might be against the very flawed Eric Greitens, their former governor. Lucas is a 13-year Marine veteran and an antitrust advocate. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Lucas Kuntz. Lucas, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Not at all. So I'm Lucas Kuntz. I'm running for U.S. Senate here in Missouri as a Democrat. And born and raised in Missouri, did 13 years in the Marine Corps, a little Iraq, a little Afghanistan, did arms control negotiations with NATO and Russia out of the Pentagon, worked for a nonprofit that fights corporate monopoly power, and now doing this U.S. Senate seat.
1: It's a pretty ambitious thing to run for the U.S. Senate. Why is that what you're choosing to do at this point in your life?
0: Well, I tell you, you know, I thought I was just gonna be in the Marine Corps for the 20 years. It really comes back to this neighborhood I grew up in down in Jeff City, Missouri. You know, all of us were broke. My, you know, my parents got married at 19 and 22. They had four kids, you know, paycheck to paycheck. I remember watching my mom write the check at the grocery store and just beg the cashier not to cash it till the end of the month. And then when my little sister was born, she had a heart condition. Our family went bankrupt. And I mean, this is when you really find out who your friends are, right? And uh, and the people in that community just did an incredible job taking care of us. Whenever my mom was at the hospital, just hours away with, with my dad and my little sister, everyone took us into their homes. They brought food by the house, more tuna casserole than we could eat. They uh, And they really just helped us out. They passed the plate down at church. And so I I spent my life trying to pay that back. So I joined the Marine Corps. I thought it'd be a great way to serve everybody. I did 13 years Again, went to Iraq, went to Afghanistan. Frankly, I watched our country spend $6.4 trillion over there, supposedly nation building these other countries. And then every time I come back to my old neighborhood, things are worse. Like the first house I ever lived in is an empty lot now. It's been bulldozed down. The one I joined the Marine Corps out of is boarded up. It's got graffiti on it. The corner store is boarded up grocery store where they let my mom float a check is gone. And it's just, uh, I don't know, it got me really fuming. Uh, So I've started volunteering at some of these nonprofits that um, fight the folks who've been stripping our communities and communities like that for parts. And I really feel like Missouri is the front line for this fight, right? We got the Josh Hollies, the Eric Greitens, the Donald Trumps of the world rolling in here with a bucket full of lies, taking advantage of the way that people feel left behind and absolutely doing nothing for them. So I want to be a counterbalance to that I want to fight that I want to fight that on the front line now, the marine corps they t- teach me to shirk away from a challenge right like this is the challenge of our generation I'm here to fight it I'm excited to do that
1: it is inevitable I assume for you to get the question about whether Missouri is actually winnable for a democrat in this time right it went solidly for Trump uh even Jason Kander in a better year couldn't uh, carry the seat. Um, it's, you know, it used well, to be that was a,
0: actually a worse year in Missouri. Trump won by more in 2016 than he did in 2020 here. But you're,
1: you're up in you're you're coming, you're up in a non-Trump year where, where the, it's likely to be a rough midterm for Democrats. I don't really want you to have to deal with that question about like whether it's winnable, but it kind of goes to the, political judgment i think a little bit like why would you pick this year in your home state to to make this tough fight it is very unlikely that you can win it
0: first of all i disagree with the second part of that but we'll get there later but um you know when i started doing this i thought i was running against roy blunt right a long-term incumbent uh who would have had a zillion dollars and probably an easy road of it and uh, that didn't matter to me though because again This state was reliably a swing vote for a very long time, right? We had almost all Democrats elected statewide up through 2016. And we are losing that because the National Democratic Party has not taken care of the people who live here. And I'll give you a great example. I mean, you know, people think, oh, Missouri is such a red state. They talk trash on it. They're like, oh, those people, they don't care about other folks. They don't want to do anything. They're just a bunch of, you know, conservative nut job losers. It's like, well, let me tell you something. Mr. East Coast Liberal, Missouri passed by ballot initiative, a federal a minimum wage, five dollars over the federal level. Like we passed a twelve dollar minimum wage here by initiative petition. I can tell you right now, twelve dollars in Missouri is more than 15 bucks is in New York, D.C., San Francisco. All right. We passed Medicaid expansion here. We fought back right to work. You know, you got what? Supposedly blue Virginia is a right to work state. Well, right here in Missouri, the people of this state by initiative petition overturned uh, right to work and they did it 68% to 32%. We uh, passed medical marijuana. We expanded Medicaid. Like what you have here is you have a state where people want to fundamentally change who has power. They want to take power back. They feel like they've been left behind and like they have no power. And it's because they have. It's because they have and, you know, Democrats uh, running in this state have not done a very good job of distancing themselves from the National Party, of standing for something different, of not taking money from sort of the folks who who control a narrative that, you know, Wall Street's great, big tech is where it's at, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Missouri seems to me it fits in with a a number of states like West Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee and Arkansas that used to be highly contested or Democrats would dominate in the national offices, but something has changed and all of those states have become very, very difficult, probably for the same reason. I think there's something that's changed about, I mean, like I take your point about there are progressive policies that can be passed by ballot initiative and so on, but we can't have all of our Democrats, running against the national party right and saying that you know that biden's not doing the right thing or the national party is somehow different and taking the wrong kind of money i mean we're all part of the same team right you're asking to become a national democrat by being in the us senate how do you both do that and recognize that something about these this kind of state is different and and maybe needs to be spoken to differently
0: well, I mean, the thing that's different about the state, uh, we can take the ones you just gave examples of. Only one of those states is not a right-to-work state. Only one. And it's Missouri, and they did it by ballot initiative 68 to 32. That is a very big difference. That's where working people have taken power back into their own hands and where they believe in a message that the other states haven't been able to do or haven't done. And so uh, and another thing is Missouri had Democrats in it much, much later, uh, than those did uh, as far as like most of the statewides. Uh, I think Missouri is different. Um, None of those states have uh, a St. Louis and a Kansas City. So, you know, there's two large urban centers here uh, which balance out much more closely than others do. And so, uh, but when you talk about the national party, like um, I'll give you an example of where I think that I think we lost a lot of people and that is the Great Recession. So if you look at a chart of the recovery from the Great Recession, all the other states around Missouri, they go up in like a pretty good slant in the recovery, you know, like 45 degree angle gross domestic product, whatever you want to use. They all recovered okay. The ones on the coasts, whoo, let me tell you, very steep recovery. It looks pretty good. Missouri, flat line, just a flat line. So you got all these people in Missouri who voted for Obama in 2008. Like if Obama had invested in, in Missouri, to a significant degree, he would have won the state. I mean, he only lost, I don't remember what it was, it was less than a percentage point or something like that. Like it was very close. Again, last time this seat was up, Jason Kander in a Trump wave year only lost by 2.8% running on an anti-corruption message. So so it's not lost, but, but where you lose a lot of people is uh, nationally, Democrats took a lot of credit for a recovery that didn't recover in Missouri. And I'll just give a personal example on that, right? Like, so my dad... This guy's done everything that he was told to do his entire life. He's a believer in the institutions. You know, Catholic Church said have kids. He had kids, right? They said do this. He did that. You know, they said you got a disabled daughter. Take care of her. You got to stay in your job for the insurance. He stays in the job for the insurance for her all the way until um, he retires. And then when he retires, my grandparents live in Columbia, Missouri, about 30 miles north of Jeff City, where we grew up. There you have Alzheimer's. He's helping take care of them. He's got a disabled daughter. Democrats around the country are raving about how they have saved our economy. And he wants to obviously stay where he is so his daughter can stay in her home. Can't find a job in mid-Missouri. Or can't find a job in Jeff City. Expands his search to mid-Missouri. Can't find one. Expands to the rest of Missouri. Nothing. Finally gets a headhunter. This heads to Hunter. Where do you think he sends him, Nathaniel? To California. And then to Maryland, where the economic recovery was on temp jobs. He's living in people's basements. Like this is a man who's worked his entire life like hard. And then when he finally gets a permanent job, he has to leave the house that he grew up in. The only time my little sister knows. Uh, and he has to leave his parents behind to essentially die alone. And he, And this is when Democrats are saying they've saved the housing market. And he's like, well, the one thing I got to do is sell that house because I can't afford to live in two places. And I don't want to keep living in people's basements. And so he puts our house on the market. It sits on the market for two years, he gets $43,000 for a house he owes 70-something on. And that is not like a boohoo story about my dad. But every single Missourian who doesn't have means has lived through that over the last decade. And they don't trust the institutions that Democrats keep telling them to trust. And so, you know, again, like Wall Street bailout, housing market stuff, all these things that they're like, we did this for you. People didn't feel that. And then Josh Hawley, Eric Greitens, whoever else, they roll in here. Uh, Donald Trump with lies about the institutions, and we get things like people not being willing to take COVID shots because they distrust uh, what they see as the system so much. And what we haven't had is we haven't had any Democrats really run against that here. We haven't had them acknowledge how broken the system in the, is. And the closest that we've had them do that, Jason Kander in 2016. You know, people remember him assembling assault rifle like that was a money raising ad for people on the coasts. What he ran in Missouri was. Roy Blunt's wife's a corporate lobbyist. Roy Blunt's three children are corporate lobbyists. I'm a nice guy. That was his campaign here. He closed the gap by 15 points just on that. And then you had our auditor win in 2018 as a Democrat on the same anti-corruption message. I put X number of Democrats, X number of Republicans behind bars uh, for violating the law and for being corrupt. She wins by the same amount that Claire McCaskill loses by in 2018. So the opportunity is here. But the thing is, like, you can't come to people. And this is where I think Democratic consultants get it wrong uh, because they've been preaching it to me. They're like, well, you need to tell people you'll give them slightly cheaper health care. You need to tell them that you can reduce the price of prescription drugs, because when we poll, that's what everybody wants. Dude, if you go to a Missourian and you're like, I'm going to reduce the price of prescription drugs. Guess what answer you get? 535 members of Congress all ran on reducing the price of prescription drugs and it didn't happen. So why on earth would we believe you? We know who takes the money from whom and we know who doesn't care. And so that's why in our campaign, we're not taking the money from the corporate PACs. We're not taking it from federal lobbyists. We're not taking it from pharmaceutical executives. We're not taking it from big oil executives. We're running a different campaign with a very clear message on changing who has power, which is what people in this state want.
1: If you had the power, what kind of policy changes would you make that would address the kind of situation that your dad was in and some of these other people are in that have been left behind by economic recovery that happened elsewhere?
0: Absolutely, I would not use. So the piping in our system is built to push money into Wall Street and let, and then let Wall Street decide where that money goes. You know, the Fed Reserve—they print the money, they dump it into the into the banks, and then it goes out. It goes to private equity firms. It goes to all these people who then, you know, claim to efficiently distribute it in society in a way that under capitalism works for everyone. Right? We have seen that that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. I mean. People are upset about housing prices being so high right now. You know, one of the reasons they're so high is because during the pandemic, we printed $120 billion a month and we dumped it into Wall Street to figure out what to do with it. And in a search for yield, they went around to small towns and big towns all across America and they just bought up housing stock. And the competition was very fierce. I mean, all across Missouri, people complained about that. They're like, all these people came in. I could never buy a house because these all cash buyers in places like Castle Point, Missouri, where like no one would ever buy a house unless they were living there, were coming in and they were looking for a place to park that free money that the Fed Reserve gave them and get a search for yield. And so what I would do is instead of giving it to Wall Street to decide what to do with it, because what they're going to do is what's best for them, is I would use the power of the federal government to invest in things that we actually need, invest in industrial policy, invest in things like the energy of the future, energy technology of the future, so that we can create good jobs and actually like move our country forward. And uh, I'll give a good example. Before World War II, there was a company called Alcoa, that made all of America's aluminum. And they, and they artificially choked the supply because they were more interested in profit per unit rather than than increasing production, which actually is the exact same thing that Exxon's CEO said in February when he was in front of the Exxon's uh, shareholders. He said, you know, everybody's like, drill more in America. This guy goes to his shareholders and he's like, we're not interested in more production. We're interested in profit per barrel. Choke the supply right and you get that. And so this was leading into World War II, FDR and a bunch of people went to Alcoa and they're like, y'all need to uh, increase your production. We need all this aluminum to fight a war that's coming. Alcoa, being a monopolist, said, no, we're not going to do that. Why would we do that? And so what the federal government did was they invested in just building out a bunch of aluminum plants all across the country, I don't want the government running things they didn't have them run it they contracted it out right and then we were able to have the capacity to fund world war ii and actually you know stave off fascism for the world and then at the end of the war they auctioned those off to the highest bidders and one of the guys who bought one of the facilities was named reynolds and that's where you get reynolds wrapped from and so like you break monopolies you uh, create real production you get innovation it moves our country forward and so one of the things that i saw Uh, when I was doing arms control control negotiations out of the Pentagon as a Marine uh, with NATO and Russia, is I would go over to NATO and I would say, hey, y'all, like, we need you to take a hard position on Russia. They're building up on the border. It looks like they want to do another invasion. They are violating all their treaty obligations. They've already invaded Ukraine in 2014. They'd invaded Georgia in 2008. We need you to do something about this and stand with us. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And the reason they wouldn't do it is because they were getting that cheap Russian gas and they were addicted to it. And uh, and they expected the U.S. taxpayer to subsidize that cheap gas by putting more troops and equipment over in Europe to protect them, which is exactly what we did. We spent billions of dollars doing that. And now you're seeing Ukrainians subsidize that cheap gas. They got all those years with their blood. And so what we need to do in a way that doesn't give money to Wall Street, improves our national security, everything else is. We should have invested in the next generation of energy technology right here in the Midwest where we've been under economic warfare for a couple generations, like build out the wind, build out the solar, build out the hydrogen, address modular nuclear, like use the nuclear waste that we have in next generation nuclear technologies and then control the energy future ourselves, export that. I'm telling you, like having watched us spend $6 trillion in Iraq and Afghanistan, that like investing here, creating good jobs, getting energy dependent, saving the planet at the same time that would have cost less than fighting war for oil in Iraq. It's absolutely maddening that we didn't do that. And the reason we didn't do it is because fossil fuel companies have control over our economy. But that's the type of investment that I think we should be making. It should be real solid investment. We should do it in semiconductors because I'm telling you what, like Taiwan is going to be the next Ukraine and Taiwan makes like 53 percent of the semiconductors in the entire world and our military leaders right now. They're going to be forced to defend that place at all costs. We're going to find ourselves in another war uh, if we don't get some sort of investment here in building out semiconductor technology. There are a whole bunch of things that we need to do that on. But what I want to do is actually take the money instead of giving it to wall street and who spins it around, we should actually invest in like hardcore production and research and development in our country.
1: Are there particular monopolies that, Have significant impact in Missouri that you are really unhappy about?
0: Absolutely. Big ag is one of the worst ones. I actually had a farming event in northern Missouri a little while ago. And so it was in Palmyra, Missouri, had farmers from all across the area come in. By the way of background, Missouri used to have the greatest number of independent hog farmers of any state in the entire country. It was something people here were proud of. It kept northern Missouri functioning. It kept uh, you know everything in the local economy. These independent farmers would buy their feed locally, equipment locally, all that sort of stuff. So I kept the profit from the land in the community, and it kept Northern Missouri in a pretty good spot financially, actually. And then a monopoly company, first premium standard farms, later purchased by Smithfield. They came in, they used predatory monopoly tactics, violated the Packers and Stockyards Act. Nobody cared. Corporate judges wouldn't do anything about it. They ran all these folks out of business, and essentially destroyed 90% of Missouri independent hog farmers. And when they wanted to cash out on that, this is what the farmers are talking about in Palmyra. When, when Smithfield wanted to cash, off, cash out on destroying a generation of hog farmers in Missouri, they decided to sell themselves to China. And the farmland that went with it and all the profits that come out of the land. And uh, incidentally, Missouri actually had a law in the books that made that illegal. Missouri had a law that said foreign ownership of agricultural land uh, is not legal in Missouri. But this is monopoly power. This is how monopoly power works, right? It's not just marketplace power. It's also political power. Smithfield went and they donated about 5,000 bucks to a bunch of legislators down in the state legislature from both parties. Now, Northern Missouri used to be represented by a bunch of Democrats, actually. And so they gave they gave this money to all the legislators to change the law quietly so that now 1% of Missouri farmland could be owned by foreign companies. And when that vote went before the Missouri State Senate for the first time, one person, just one person voted against it. And that obviously eventually became law. The sale went through and now much of Missouri farmland is owned by a foreign monopolist who sucks the profits out of the land. You got like buildings and town squares falling down in all these towns uh, because all the wealth from the land leaves. You got all these farmers who were suffering and things like that. And so this is just one example. I mean, there's several other big ag ones, but it's a place that really matches our campaign theme, which is that like, We need to fundamentally change who has power in this country. And like for these guys, like the worst rub for them is like the legislators got bought off for five thousand bucks a piece, like five thousand bucks to destroy the way of life of all these people. And that's just uh, that's terrible. And like in Missouri, you haven't had a Democrat who's been able to run on that yet because they all took money from Smithfield. And so we're going to be able to call out the folks on the other side. Finally, finally, someone can have the power to do that because they're not taking the money from the monopolist.
1: So why U.S. Senate, not governor or something like that?
0: There's a lot of national security bent to many of the things that I work on and talk about uh, that I would like to bring to the U.S. Senate. And so, you know, I wrote a piece a while ago when I was the nonprofit just coming out of the Pentagon on the national security case for decarbonization. I've seen the influence and the power that um, defense contractors have in the halls of Congress because in my last duty station, I was actually at the Pentagon. For the last year, I did procurement. I went around. I tried to help get small minority women-owned businesses, etc. cetera, contracts, tried to help change contracting paradigms. We, were, we struggled very, very much because the, the big guys were basically in charge big five prime contractors. And uh, and so for me, I think the federal government is where we have the power to make the type of investment that I want to make. Like if you're the governor, you're almost at the whims of what the federal government um, is is creating. And so in the U.S. Senate, we can actually focus on that type of investment. I can use the leverage that I would have in a close Senate to actually get investments uh, back into the Midwest, try to get things like the CHIPS Act funded so that we start actually investing in semiconductors, not talking about it. That is where a lot of the antitrust authority is. I'd like to run hearings on it. When I was uh, at the nonprofit, we helped run hearings against big tech in the House Antitrust Subcommittee. Uh, and uh, you know, it led to 49 lawsuits by state's attorney generals just from the, the evidence that was uncovered in those hearings. And so I'd like to do hearings on big ag, defense contractors, and a bunch of other things to bring to light what's going on uh, to give evidence to some like local antitrust authorities and private actors, and, uh, and really just move forward on a lot of these things that I wouldn't be able to do as governor or someone in the state government.
1: How do you think about that relationship with the Democratic president and the Democratic Party when you're running for Senate? The president has put forward people into the FTC and other places that seem to be much more concerned about monopolistic practices, certainly than his predecessor.
0: Absolutely. So Lena Kahn, the chairwoman of the FTC, she was the the lead staff member for those hearings I was just talking about uh, on the House Antitrust.
1: And many of the proposals and things, money that was proposed in Build Back Better, a lot of good ideas. You, You were in a situation where like, a lot, of, a lot of Democrats are coached in a hard midterm to run against the party or decide to run against the party for their own personal reasons. But if we're all doing that, then everybody's saying, the Republicans are saying the Democratic Party's bad and the Democrats are saying the Democratic Party's bad. And then people are going to believe both of them. How do you think about navigating how to run when, when the brand of the Democratic Party is not great in your state?
0: Yeah, I just run it on the issues. And so I don't even really run a left-right campaign. I run a top-bottom campaign. And so anything that I think the Biden administration's done well on that, I talk about. Like I, I brag about how my work was the basis of uh, a large section of a competition policy executive order that President Biden signed last summer, and how DOD has had to change some of their practices based on that work. I mean, I think that's a great thing. I think they're doing great. I think appointing Lena Khan as the FTC chairwoman was a home run. I think uh, things that they've done... Um, to not put corporate judges, not just on the Supreme Court, but like in in a bunch of the other lower level positions has been absolutely huge. I mean, if it's anything that touches on us fundamentally changing who has power in this country, I'm down. Like, I like it. I want to talk about it. Uh, Anything that's investment in this country, I want to talk about. I think a spot where Democrats really had an opportunity to build trust that they failed on and continue to fail on is this ownership of stock by members of Congress. I had a reporter from, I think it was the American Prospect, follow me around, did a, did a nice profile on the race. And uh, she, she asked everyone she went to, hey, what is it that you like the most about Lucas' campaign? What's the thing that pops up the most or, or what, what gets you excited? I was absolutely shocked at what it was. And the answer that came up the most was that they really like that I believe members of Congress shouldn't own stock, period, because they make decisions based on their stock portfolios, rather than on the people they're supposed to represent. It came up over and over and over again. And this is one where, you know, Nancy Pelosi, when she was asked, what do you think about insider trading in Congress? She said, it's a free market. People should be able to do whatever they want. And so, you know, that's the type of situation where um, we're forced to have a contrast with the party, right? And so it's not like I'm seeking this out. It just happens sometimes. Uh, I don't think it would probably happen for anybody. What I want to do is be in a position uh, where people know that what I stand for is representing the people who took care of me as a kid, and that's it. Like everyday communities across our state. So any position that kind of like uh, wouldn't jive with the national party on that, then I, then I take it. And any that does, I do. Those are two kind of examples of one that would fall on either side. I don't know. I don't have like a litany list. We don't go out of our way to like hit people. <laughs> so, uh, but some sometimes things happen.
1: How do you see the state of the kind of progressive coalition in Missouri, like I talked to Molly Fleming at Move at one mm-hmm. point.
0: yeah, I know Molly yeah yeah.
1: We talked about uh ballot initiatives and about things that she's worked on and what the groups are that are working on this I think aligned with a, a number of the things that you just said you're for. How do you see the strength of that? Uh, of your allies in the state that would help you get across the finish line if you were to get the nomination and run in the general?
0: I mean, it's absolutely critical. Like the work they're doing on the ground on, on specific issues is the work that most Missourians want done. Like it really is. And so our campaign stands alongside of that. I mean, I think I'm the only candidate on either side or was anyway for a long time. It was for marijuana legalization, just full federal mar- marijuana legalization. And, uh, and there's a ballot measure that's working through its way through the system on that. We just need to not run away from those things. We need to embrace kind of what the people are looking for. And the folks you mentioned, sort of these non-party groups, but, you know, C4s, sort of um, nonprofits, uh, who are working to educate voters, to show how things benefit them, to show how, um, to show change that's needed. I think, I think it's critical. I mean, this is really what you saw in Georgia, sort of push things over the top. And I think they're trying to do that in other places, because when people understand the issue, when people talk about the issue, when when they really get to to go into a lot of these issues, you find that the vast majority are supportive of them. I mean, expanded background checks and red flag protections are like another great example. Right. Like when you talk to uh, when you poll uh, Democrats, Republicans, independents, gun owners, non-gun owners, they all want those things. And the margins are very large. And the more they find out about them, the more they want them. And so it's just a really critical information piece uh, that needs to continue.
1: Lucas, who won the last presidential election? Was it rigged? Did somebody uh, cheat to win? Did we have the greatest breakdown in our democracy and Biden won by foul means? What what do you think? It's
0: funny. So when I go around the state uh, last summer, I was getting this question quite a bit. I actually haven't gotten it in a pretty long time. I think people are kind of over it now. But uh, people would be like, well, who's the president? I like Joe Biden. <laughs> and uh, and they would say, oh, sleepy Joe, huh? And I would be like, well, who's the governor? And this is where it gets really fascinating. Because our governor is a guy named Mike Parson. And, uh, and most of the time, uh, the people who were upset that I would say Joe Biden would not respond Mike Parson. They would respond Eric Greitens. And so uh, for your listener who might not know, Eric Greitens is our disgraced former governor who's my likely opposition uh, in the general. He's leading the primary by quite a bit. And so this guy, um, he was impeached by his own party for stealing from his veterans charity to sort of kickstart his governor's campaign and assaulting his hairdresser in his basement and uh, a couple of other things. And so he was forced to resign to avoid indictment. And, you know, he made best pals with Steve Bannon, Michael Flynn, Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump Jr. endorsed him, Kimberly Guilfoyle's running his national campaign. And uh, and this is like what we're up against on the other side, just the willing to lie at all costs on anything. And there is a percentage of people in this state who, who we will never get, right? We're just not going to get them. And it's the percentage in this Republican primary. It's about... 30, 35% who are going to vote for Eric Greitens, who are going to go for the big lie, no matter what. It's fascinating to see that that's going to carry, uh, that this guy, despite all of his baggage, is, is going to carry the Republican primary. On the flip side, you know, we have done a lot of work to, to close the polling gap with him. I started off being 20 points behind him in the latest Republican poll, which they did a plus 26 Republican on, which Missouri is more like a plus 16 state, plus 15 state, he was only ahead by point nine percent on me. We've really closed the gap there. We've made it one of the most competitive, closest states in, in the entire country. I mean, Real Clear Politics just upgraded it to to lean uh, Republican rather than likely. CNN's got it on its top ten most likely to flip seats. That's just a real a real curious opportunity, and it all goes back to the very question you asked at the beginning of this, which was, "Who's the president?"
1: I'm surprised that you come down on that side because. Josh Hawley, who's a senator from Missouri, seems to think otherwise. Why should people trust what you say on that election as opposed to the guy they already elected?
0: Eric Greitens is the one who's the most vocal about it. In Missouri, he's the one who's taken the lead on it. He's the one who's sort of the oh, front well, face, face for it. Well, Hawley
1: raised his fist to support those protesters on January 6th. Oh, yeah. He, I'm not he, saying he didn't. He,
0: Yeah. Uh, But I will say in Missouri, the guy who is associated with it right now is Eric Greitens. You know, he's gone to Arizona like a dozen times to mess around with that stuff. He's made it his thing. And, um, you know, he's a pretty incredible uh, messenger.
1: Do you understand the appeal of Trump and Greitens and their associates to your fellow citizens of Missouri?
0: Yes. They acknowledge that the system is broken and that it's not working for Missourians. Democrats' n- sort of national theme is that the institutions work, trust the institutions. There are many, many examples around here where people feel like the institutions just didn't work for them. You can't run on the institutions in Missouri. Like, and people are right to think that they're corrupt. They're wrong to think that Donald Trump, the guy who Put Gary Cohn, the president of Goldman Sachs in charge of the economy, is the guy who's going to do anything about changing the system, right? Like he, he got away with some serious lies they all have, but they're right to believe that the system's not working for them. And I'll give you, and tell you what, man, this is not just like a white issue. Like this is white, black, this is everywhere you go, rural, urban, people feel like the system's not working for them. And this idea that you can run on the institutions is very, very flawed. And so I'll give you an example of this. This town down in the boot Hill of Missouri, it's called Hayti Heights. I like to give this example every time because I really, truly believe people should know about this. So it's an all-black town. Well, maybe it has two white people. It's like 800 black folks. In this town, uh, the the mayor, she's a young black woman around my age, uh, if I can call myself young, I guess. I'm like 40. You're young to me. <laughs> there we go. Good. <laughs> So um, she's, uh, she's the cousin of a friend of mine. So my friend was like, you should go down and meet Katrina uh, down in Hayti Heights, see what they got going on down there. They've had some trouble with the water system. I was like, great, done. I'm going to go down there and check it out. So I go down there, and on the day that I show up, well, I've been there like five times since, but, but on the first day I get there, um, one of the saddest sites I've ever seen. This community is on the side of a rural highway trying to sell hot dogs and potato chips to fix their water system. Because their water system is not safe. It was tested to not be safe. And they're currently buying water from their neighboring town. But the neighboring town doesn't have the resources to keep them on the water, even though they're fully up to date on the payments. And so you have these two towns in southeast Missouri who are fighting over clean water in America in the 21st century. They're literally fighting. They have town hall meetings where they're going back and forth on on who and how they're going to get clean water. Just absolutely brutal to see. They're there trying to raise money to fix their water system on the side of the road. And then it gets even worse. If you can believe it can get worse. Katrina's like, "Uh, sorry, it's going to take me a second here, but we got to go check the pumps. And I'm like, okay, fine, let's go check the pumps. I thought it was going to be part of the water system, but it's actually part of their sewer system. So they have uh, four sewage pumps in town that pump the water until it gets to the sewage field. Two of those pumps have long been down and they haven't been able to get the funding or they haven't been able to get someone to come replace them. And so what they have done, swear to God, it's like I was back in Iraq. In Iraq, there are all these like gas powered, hand cranked pumps all over the place to move water different places. You see it with irrigation in the United States too. And so what they've done is they've rigged up these pumps on the two broken sewage systems. So now they're external pumps. And every two hours, every two hours, middle of the night, whenever, someone from that town, oftentimes Mayor Katrina, has to go to those pumps, fill it up with gasoline, hand crank it so that it keeps running in order to move, keep the sewage moving. And they've got all these carcasses of dead pumps because pumps aren't these pumps aren't made to run continuously like that. And so I'm like, gosh, well, like, what can I do? Like, how can we get to the state to get this fixed? And she's like, oh, we don't talk to the state anymore. And I was like, well, why is that? And she says, because the state of Missouri doesn't care about what's happening here until it overflows. And then they come in and they fine us for creating an environmental situation. And it's been going on since Democrats were in charge of Missouri, too, where it's like she was like, I won my mayoral election with like seven votes because no one in this town votes anymore. No one trusts the systems anymore. The system is broken. They don't care about us. The money never goes to where it's needed to go. We have been absolutely gutted by big agriculture down here and left behind to fight over clean water and like running sewage. And so for me, this is just, you know, another example. I get the same thing in urban St. Louis, but it's just over and over again the system is broken is a very powerful theme.
1: Lucas, the the government just passed a giant bill to fix infrastructure around the country. Does that eventually apply to that particular situation?
0: It should apply to that situation. If I was in the U.S. Senate, I'd make damn sure that it did. I don't know if the money's going to get to her. She has filled out several applications to try to get it. She's you know reached out to the federal government So far it hasn't happened. They were supposed to be dropped from the water system May 31st, they got a reprieve on that. And and I don't know what the next date is. I'm supposed to call her later this week.
1: We are all good at some things and less good at other things. What do you think are your strengths and weaknesses that apply to being a U.S. Senator? What would you need around you in terms of staff and advisors to do the best job for your state if you should be elected.
0: Yeah, I think my biggest strength is is I am a true believer in what I'm talking about. Like, I truly want to change who has power. I don't want to take money from these people. I'm not doing it. I want to make it so that everyday folks in Missouri get investment again. I believe that this is a real national security issue. I believe in the decarbonization for national security. I believe this is our future. I see Western Europe right now. I see them thinking about going for the next generation of, of energy and I see them looking at China rather than the United States and that breaks my heart. The fact that we might trade, you know, the Saudis and Vladimir Putin as the energy of the future. I am very passionate about this and 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 it's critical that we work to invest, like, we, we have a real beautiful solution here, right? We invest in our own country, we create good paying jobs, and we save the planet at the same time and make ourselves safer. Like, it's so clear uh, that I'm very, very singularly cited on it. And so uh, I think that one of the things that will be helpful for me is to have folks who uh, aren't just true believers, but have the organizational skills to sort of channel that energy and those beliefs into actual, like, Real on the ground action, and so like for me, you know, I'm very distracted by Haighte Heights. I go down there again and again because I think that that's an American tragedy, and uh, and I need people to to focus me to make sure that that everyone gets what they need.
1: A lot of this year has been dominated on the foreign policy front by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and in a long term. Way It's going to be a very tricky call for the United States to figure out how involved to be. It's already been a tricky call, and we've already gotten involved to a certain point. I generally think that President Biden has made reasonable, thought-out decisions up to this point about how involved to be. We don't want to be in a nuclear confrontation with Russia. No one's going to win that that country deserves some defense and the people there are getting brutally murdered by an awful dictatorship. If the world lets Russia take that, then Russia may continue to expand. How do you think about, from the perspective of worrying first about maybe the people of Missouri, but how do you think about big foreign policy questions that may involve the future of billions of people when you are a us senator you you have to think about what's happening with a with a pump in the boot heel and you have to think about international relations on a grand scale what's your thought process on on ukraine and how to deal with that
0: so the beautiful thing about this is just how connected they are when I talk about building out the next generation of energy, like Putin could not have done this war if Western Europe hadn't been buying his gas. Couldn't have done. It. In fact, if we would sanction his gas right now and Western Europe would stop buying it, he would have to negotiate with Ukraine because he would realize he only has X number of dollars, rubles, Euros to continue this campaign before he runs out.
1: There's a huge international market for oil and gas. And if we don't buy it from, if we buy it, switch where we're buying it from, then someone else is going to switch where they're going to buy it from. And it's it's pretty going to be pretty awfully hard to shut everyone in the world off from buying what he's got. Because right now as prices have gone up, right? A lot of people have stopped buying it. Prices have gone up. He's getting even more money.
0: So when I was on the joint staff, one of the things I did was countering weapons of mass destruction. And what I learned when I was there on counterproliferation was that Most purchases of goods and material in in the world are done in U.S. dollars, and the ones that aren't are usually done in euros. And we were able to stop transaction after transaction after transaction by illicit actors by using the power of the U.S. dollar. Forty percent of Russian gas purchases are done in U.S. dollars. Another large percentage are done in euros. We have the capability to stop all of these cold. And when you're running a war and you need to have X amount of dollars, you don't have time. I mean, you saw how hard it was for the United States to recover from a supply chain uh, issue with semiconductors, everything else during COVID with things coming from China. You can't just switch the way that your pipes go. You can't just switch the way that the supply chain is built. So we had the capability, and I believe that we still do, to shut down most of his gas sales. Like he doesn't have just the pipeline set up to start selling that to other places. Like these are long term infrastructure programs that don't exist and it will defund him short term. And long term, if we invest in the next generation of energy, We'll defund him completely. And what we did, though, what we saw happen instead was we saw feckless leaders who were bought off by big oil companies, many who were supposedly American oil companies doing business in Russia. You know, they do a lot of the exploration for Russia and a bunch of other things. We saw them let Western Europe get more reliance on Russian gas since 2014, not less more reliant like we could have gone the other direction over the last eight years and we went the bad direction instead and it's because policy the way policy decisions were made it's because who makes decisions right and and like the thing that i don't get is uh, again i was talking earlier about how the exxon ceo was acting like the alcoa ceo back in the day right like well i'm just going to choke production because like why would i produce more i get more money when there's less production these guys if you go back to a former exxon ceo from about 20 years ago Like, he put it better than anybody. He said, I'm not an American company. I don't make decisions based on what's good for America. What the United States needs to do is we need to understand that we need to flex power. We need to use our authorities. We need to use our capabilities and just overrule the folks who are making uh, decisions based on their own financial interests. And I don't think that's going to happen unless you get more candidates coming in who don't take money from them, which is obviously my whole thing.
1: I assume you've read American political history. Are there heroes that you have going back in time or currently that you think have kind of understood what the right kind of politics that works well for this country and for the people that live here?
0: I think Paul Wellstone was good. Going back a little further, this is, of course, personal to me because I live down the street from where he used to live. Harry Truman was an original Missouri populist. The guy was for for universal health care. He was pro union. He really made his mark in Congress by running hearings on the military industrial complex and how they were uh, taking advantage of America in the war situation. Which is exactly what I want to do if I get into Congress. So uh, I think he's a really great example for someone who did some some pretty amazing things in many ways. Coming from Missouri, he desegregated the military. Right, he took a huge hit, very big risk, lost the South because of it, but did it anyway.
1: What was it that you liked about Paul Wellstone? He was the hero to a lot of political people I've talked to, but what... Oh, really? What a, yeah. Progressive activists, a lot of them came out of that Wellstone tradition. What was it about him that you might model yourself after?
0: I mean, really just, you know, he he was pro-peace. He was for the environment, labor, healthcare. It was a lot of the things, uh, really, that I just talked about. And so for me, he just stood for what everyday people need, what everyday people actually want, and tried to make those things happen.
1: I mean, he was often a very lonely voice in the Senate.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, he he voted against repealing Glass-Steagall, and uh, we saw how that turned out in the end, right? I mean, that repealing Glass-Steagall essentially led to the Great Recession, the collapse of the economy, and everything else, and he was one of the right voices on that. That's a pretty incredible place to be in because the banking industry uh, flexes a lot of power up there. Uh, on both parties.
1: Aside from stuff we've already talked about, what would you want people to know about you and your candidacy and your state that you haven't already told me?
0: Uh, Well, I think that the biggest mistake people make uh, is they worry about its competitiveness, or they think Missouri can't be competitive uh, for a Democrat. When you get a high enough pundit, they actually don't believe that. I mean, CNN has it on the top ten most likely to flip seats. Like I said, Real Clear Politics has just shifted it to lean lean Republican instead, which makes it one of the most closely contested. But like we have a real opportunity here to run a very different campaign to to focus on a very grassroots-funded campaign that really speaks to a lot of disaffected people who, right here on the front lines for the fight for democracy, have chosen the other side rather than the Democratic side. They have actively chosen it, and a lot of people used to vote for Democrats. And if we don't get them back, I mean, we're going to lose them forever. People will call, like, Josh Hawley a populist. They'll call Donald Trump a populist. Like, these guys aren't populists. These are faux populists. They're fake. They divide people based on race, they divide them based on religion, they divide them based on where they grow up so that the folks who run their campaigns, who fund them, have power. I mean, again, Donald Trump put Gary Cohn, the president of Goldman Sachs, in charge of our economy. Like, that's the exact opposite of populism. And I would say we should not let go of the real like populist streak across middle America because it is an opportunity for Democrats to win again if they stand for fundamentally changing who has power and show that that's what they actually want to do. That's why the whole members of Congress owning stock thing really, really, really hurts me because that was an opportunity to show a difference and to say like, like we, you're right, that is corruption. People shouldn't make decisions based on their stock portfolio. And instead, Democrats were like, well, it's a free market. Or then they were like, well, maybe we can do a blind trust. I'm sorry, but Joe Manchin's privately held coal company isn't a blind trust. Does he, like, suddenly forget where his money is coming from because of that? No, he doesn't. Like, when you sign up to be a member of Congress, you're signing up to serve just like I did, just like others did when we joined the Marine Corps, right? We didn't expect to join the Marine Corps, do a bunch of insider trading, coming out a gazillionaire. We expected to risk our lives, serve our country and our communities, and come out the other side honorable and respected and feel like we had done something. And, uh, and members of Congress, uh, on both sides, in many cases— Apparently, I think that it's just a great opportunity to use inside information to make money on the stock market. And I think that we need to use opportunities like that to rebuild trust. And if we let them go by, like every one of those that we let go by is another opportunity for the Josh Hollies and the Eric Greitens and the Donald Trumps of the world to say that we don't stand for everyday people, that we are you know, part of the problem, you know, swamp, whatever they use. And so I'd really like us to stand for some of those.
1: Well, then where are you going to put your multi-millions?
0: Oh, I don't have multi-millions. I don't even have $100,000, man.
1: I assumed if you're running for Senate, you must have many millions of dollars, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, No, uh, I believe the financial uh, report showed that I would be one of the poorest members of Congress. But I actually think I'm doing pretty well. So I don't don't know. I mean, (laughs) compared to the way that I grew up, compared to my parents, I'm like... (laughs) it's pretty incredible. But I also don't own any stocks. Like I I decided, you know, I'm not going to own any stocks in this campaign. I have a federal government TSP from when I was in the Marine Corps. Like I'll have that. And I don't want there to be any conflict of interest for me.
1: Is there a thing that you learned in the Marine Corps just about leadership or how to run your life or like, what did you learn there that you would apply as a candidate, as a senator?
0: So for the Marines, you know, our our fundamental things are honor, courage, and commitment. And it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's really just like stay true to yourself, stay true to what you believe in, and don't waver no matter what the odds, no matter what sort of adversity comes in front of you. And as long as you do that, things are going to work out and you can stand tall at the end of the day. And so for me, um, that's it. That's what I want to do. Honor, courage, commitment, right? Just do the right thing. Stand for something that people can believe in, and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But at least know that you stood for something; you can hold your head high. And so, um, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled that you know for our campaign has been able to do that. We have this year we have the highest percentage of grassroots fundraising of any campaign in the entire country, like higher percentage than you know, bal Demings, John Fetterman, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. Like we did it right here in Missouri. We have it with a campaign that hasn't gotten a lot of buzz yet, and we've done it with a very clear message and just standing for something different. And, uh, you know, our average donation is 36 bucks. People told us you couldn't run a campaign like that. We've raised more than any of the Republicans have raised. That's a testament, I think, to the message and to what we're doing here and who we stand for.
1: Well, Lucas, I rarely interview candidates. That's just generally not my lane. Um, and a a friend asked if I would interview you and it's been an education to me. I'm not sure how great of a job I've done at it because.
0: Well, I hope I didn't talk too much.
1: (laughs) No, I, what I hope is that people got a sense of you, um, and where you're coming from. I did. And, uh, and I appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything else you want to say?
0: Thank you for having me here. If your audience wants to follow us, they can go to the website, LucasKunst.com. Follow me, LucasKunst Mo, You know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that stuff. Uh, and you can really see what we're doing. You can see what we're building. You can see how we're doing it very differently. If Democrats are going to have a path in the Midwest again, it's not going to be like Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin politics. That stuff doesn't work anymore. It didn't work for you know, Claire McCaskill in 2018. It's going to have to be... Running differently. It's going to be have to be standing for something different. It's going to really have to focus on uh, Corruption it's going to have to focus on how the system's broken and how we're actually going to fix it so that we can fight back against The frauds that are out there
1: well, I would love to have a Populist Democrat elected in the state of Missouri if you can do that (laughs) That would be a great blessing. So good luck. Absolutely
0: working on it every day. Thanks, Nathaniel